Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. My guest today has his hands in both art and history, and has written two bestsellers, his memoir, Priceless, How I Went Undercover to Rescue the World's Stolen Treasures, and The Devil's Diary, Alfred Rosenberg, and the Stolen Secrets of the Third Reich. Robert Whitman is former senior investigator and founder of the Federal Bureau of Investigation's National Art Crime Team and is currently president of Robert Whitman, Inc., a security and recovery consulting firm serving institutions, auction houses, collectors, galleries, insurance companies, and nations interested in protecting their cultural assets. He also finds time to be a keynote speaker at meetings and conventions across the country, as well as a Zoom lecture series he is doing Thursday, September 8th through the 29th for the University of Pennsylvania Museum. It's called The Deep Dig, Rescuing Priceless Treasures with Robert Whitman. For everything about Robert Whitman, go to robertwhitmaninc.com, and that's with two Ts. And for information on his upcoming Zoom lecture, go to pen.museum. And Robert, welcome to the show. Hey, Ira, thank you. It's great, great to be here. So tell me, why did you decide to join the FBI, part one? And then part two, why did you receive that special training in art, antiques, jewelry, and gem identification? Well, I started at the FBI in 1988. And uh, at that time, I had no ideas about being involved with art or art theft, anything like that. Uh, in fact, uh, some of your listeners might remember, that was the time when, when TV shows like The Hill Street Blues and um, Miami Vice were, were hot on television. So I enjoyed watching those particular shows. And I thought, you know, it would be fun to be an FBI agent in Miami on a cigarette boat, you know, chasing drug dealers. So uh, I applied. Uh, within six months, I was actually in the FBI, which is like super fast. And uh, I tried to get to Miami, but they wouldn't do that. They sent me to <laughs> Philadelphia. So we didn't have a whole lot of uh, cigarette boats in, uh, you know, in the harbor in the Delaware River. No, just uh, cream cheese are, and probably hoagies. <laughs> uh, a, lot of good, a lot of good cheese sticks. That's yeah. true. <laughs> so once you were picked for this particular part of the FBI training, because obviously there's a lot of different training that goes on, were you advocating to be in that special cultural property crime investigation unit? No, no. So when I was sent to Philadelphia, I was put on the uh, truck hijacking squad because there was a big problem on, on I-95 with these trucks being hijacked between New York City and Miami. And they, a lot of them were being hijacked in New Jersey, Newark, New Jersey to Philadelphia. Uh, cigarettes, you know, booze, those types of things were being hijacked and sold in the black market. So that was a big problem. So I was immediately signed to the property crime squad. So as a new agent, that's the lowest, basically the lowest priority in the FBI. And I was put on there for, for training purposes. Well, as it turned out, there were two large art heists at the same time in Philadelphia. One was from the Rodin Museum, where a famous Rodin mask was taken. And the other one was from the University of Pennsylvania Museum of Anthropology and Archaeology, which is a five-star museum, one of the best in the country. And two pieces, actually three pieces, were stolen from there at the same time. So being on that squad, the property crime squad, I was actually assigned to do the investigation on those, those thefts with another agent, the two of us. Uh, we were successful in recovering those pieces. So as a result, the FBI then said, well, you know what? We're going to send you to the art school, which they did. I went to the Barnes Foundation for a year training in fine art. And at that point, once I'd been trained, they started putting me into those types of cases. That's fascinating. So you were able to solve some issues 
before you even went to specialized training. You were obviously able to put whatever your skill set was at that time into good use. If you're an FBI agent, what differs your approach from stealing cigarettes to stealing art pieces? There's got to be some sort of very specific skill set involved there. <laughs> well, you know, according to the FBI, you know, there's no difference between a theft of a Chevrolet or a Monet. But the truth <laughs> is, the investigation of that is going to be completely different. You know, you can't go into a museum throwing fingerprint dust all over the place. You got to be careful with what you do. And, and then the market's totally different. You know, auto chop shops abound, especially on the East Coast and on the West Coast in the big cities. But basically selling stolen artwork is a whole different ballgame. There's only a certain amount of places you can go to do that. And so uh, they are they should be handled differently in two different types of investigations. How important in that work, before we get to your two books, which both are fascinating reading, how important are relationships in that world? Because there's a limited number of places, as you mentioned, that you could go to find lost art or where it's being passed around. So I would imagine there's a certain number or a limited number of people that are involved in that world. So would relationships be important in that case for you as an investigator? Oh, yeah. I mean, in that world, the the accumulation of uh, informants is really important. And, and it's not necessarily informants. It's people who are in the industry who a lot of people in the industry want to clean it up. They don't want stolen property to be, you know, uh, uh, sold and moved around the, around the, uh, in the industry because that makes it, it gives a black eye to everybody. So, you know, if a gallery owner is selling stolen property, uh, you know, a lot of his, his uh, you know, his, his people who are in competition with him are going to let us know about that because we don't, they don't want that to get out. I guess, you know, creating that relationship with the dealers, with the collectors is a big part of the, uh, of the whole idea of investigation of, of high value assets, stolen, stolen high value property. What was your most significant case during your career in the FBI? Well, you know, there's a, there's a funny thing about that. There's significance uh, when it comes to value or when we recover these types of things, they're, they're objects of cultural heritage. So at the FBI, uh, they don't really call it art theft. They call it cultural property crime. And that, that covers everything from artwork like paintings and prints and sculptures to looted artifacts from tombs in Peru or Egypt. So, you know, uh, when, when I think about the most important pieces that I think were recovered, you know, the most valuable piece, believe it or not, was a copy of the Bill of Rights, one of the original 13 copies that were you know, sent out to be ratified by George Washington. And that was stolen uh, during the Civil War uh, from the state of North Carolina by a Union trooper. He took it back to Indiana where he sold it for $5, and it stayed there until 2002 when we did an undercover operation as it was being offered for sale to the uh, Independence Constitution Center in Philadelphia. At that time, it was being offered for $4 million. But the actual value of it, if you could sell that piece on the open market, it's been valued at $100 million. I mean, it doesn't exist. You can't buy one. You right. can't sell one. Right. But then again, uh, that's, that's a very important piece. But then again, another object that I recovered was a African-American battle flag from the Civil War. It was called the 12th Regiment Corps d'Afrique's Battle Flag. That, that regiment had 500 African-American soldiers who fought, fought in the Battle of Port Hudson. Five people were shot out from under it. It was considered a, a blood clot. And that was only being offered for $35,000. But you can see the cultural significance of recovering a piece like that, which you know uh, basically represented a group of people 
a group of men who were fighting for the freedom of themselves and their children and their grandchildren for all time, and were willing to die for that, as well as you know the Bill of Rights, which is very important too. But you know the value in, in cash was different, but I think the cultural value was just as important both ways. Now you wrote your New York Times best-selling memoir, Priceless: How I Went Undercover to Rescue the World's Stolen Treasures, and you recount obviously important cases in that world of the cultural history that has been stolen and tried to be sold in the black market. Uh, do they call it the black market in the world of art and treasure and, and cultural artifacts? Yeah, for lack of a better term, it could be the, it could be the, it's actually the criminal market. You know, art crime, cultural property crime is basically a $6 billion industry every year. That's, uh, that's $6 billion bought and, you know, it's sold in the criminal aspects. So that's the illicit property part of it. The overall art market totally is a $200 billion industry. It's huge. The United States is the largest consumer country in the world when it comes to art and collectibles. We do love our stuff, so to speak. Oh, yes. So we, we buy $80 billion a year uh, that, that moves through our country. We're not the biggest creator, but we're the biggest consumer. So yeah, it's, it's a huge industry. Uh, $6 billion a year is the estimate. And uh, it, that encompasses everything from art to cultural property. But it's also what's interesting about that is about 25% of that is theft when we talk about stealing stolen property, you know, uh, cultural property. The other 75% is frauds, forgeries, and fakes. That's the, today, that's the big issue is people buying fakes. Yes, they're so easy to duplicate or replicate that you can fool a lot of people, including some experts along the way. When you were looking at your various cases in writing your book, did you reflect on the fact that uh, when you first started out watching Miami Vice, that seemed to be glamorous? But when you actually take down some of these people, is it glamorous or is it nitty gritty? Well, the it depends on the situation. I mean, you know, because of what my undercover activity was. Well, just to be honest, I was probably the only person in the bureau at the time, from ninety six nineteen ninety six to two thousand eight. I was undercover somewhere in the world the entire twelve years. So I might I might have been working four or five cases at one time. And generally speaking, the rule is you can only work one at a time. But I was working four or five because I was the only art guy. So, you know, sometimes it could be glamorous. I mean, there were times when I was on yachts in Miami Harbor, you know, buying and selling stolen art. There was other times I was in hotel rooms in Copenhagen. And I worked in 20 different countries. So in the book, I talk about cases from all different countries, all different parts of the world where we did undercover operations to recover this stolen property. Did you have to clear the book with the agency before you published it because of details that may have, may have had to be vetted? Well, we don't talk about any sources or methods in the book, but we do have to clear uh, through pre-publication review the stories themselves. But luckily, and luckily for our readers, the, the cases I talk about were all criminal cases. So they all went through a criminal process in courthouses. Right. So that's all public information then, right. It's all public information, except for, you know, the background, which would be how I felt about it, what what, would actually happen behind the scenes. Those types of things are in there as well. But there are no sources and methods. Was there a typical reaction of people that you were able to arrest once they realized that you were an undercover agent? Or, Or did it vary depending on the person you were dealing with? Uh, it varied, but you know, one of the one of the typical reactions I would say was that they'd always say, "Oh, I knew it. 
<laughs> if they knew it, why were they why were they led down the Primrose Path? <laughs> That's exactly what I asked them. I said, "Well, if you knew it, why did you do the deal?" And they said, "Well, we wanted the money. It was always about the money." So, you know, the fact is, uh, it, it's a greed situation. People are out out to make money, and that's why they steal art. People ask me why they, they do it, and it's not because they love art or you know appreciate. It. It's because they they want the money, and you know, the value of artwork has has grown exponentially. In 1958, that was the most the most expensive artwork that was sold at that year was six hundred thousand dollars. That was a, a record for for paintings. Well, just what two years ago. You know, Da Vinci went for $450 million. So you can see the, the evaluation has created this huge interest in the criminal community. Or massive famous, inflation. Oh, yeah. There, there was a famous <laughs> uh, bank robber named Willie Sutton. And uh, when Willie was being let off to prison, uh, a reporter asked him, Willie, why did you rob banks? And over, over his shoulder, he, he yelled, well, that's where the money is. And that's, <laughs> that's the same thing with criminals. Why do they do art theft? That's where the money is. The difference, though, in your line of work is that, let's say that you return a, I'd say, a trainload of cigarettes back to the manufacturer. Oh, they'll thank you and they'll be happy because it's money back in their pockets so they can sell the cigarettes again. But when you recover a priceless piece of art or cultural artifact, you're recognized and thanked by nations as well So because you're returning part of their history. And so you've received honors internationally as well as nationally, because I think of that reason is that you're returning a piece of history to the rightful owners or at least to the overseers of the, the treasure. Or yeah, well, that's, that's, that was always the point for me. It, it wasn't always to capture criminals. I mean, many times, you know, not many times, but quite a few times we recovered artwork. We didn't arrest anybody because it had been stolen years and years before. I remember one case we did where we recovered five Norman Rockwell paintings, and they were stolen 25 years before we recovered. Three of them were in Terrasopolis, Brazil. So for us to get them back, we actually had to travel to Rio de Janeiro and meet with the, uh, the, the current holder who was in violation of Brazilian statutes, and we're able to recover those and bring them back to the United States. And it's because it's part of, the, of our cultural heritage. It's the history of the, of the, of the nations. You know, another piece I recovered was a, uh, a golden artifact that was stolen from a tomb in Peru. And uh, when we recovered it and had it recognized by the archaeologist, the chief archaeologist of Peru, he said to me, he said, you have to understand, Robert, it's as if someone came and recovered the Liberty Bell. After, the, after your Liberty Bell was stolen and missing for 20 years, and somebody was able to recover that and bring it back to you, that's how we feel. Getting this piece back is like you recovering your Liberty Bell. And, you know, being in Philadelphia, that really had a big impact on me. I understood how important it was to those people. Before we talk about your second book, which is equally fascinating, how important is technology? You started in the late 80s in this art recovery and artifact recovery, but technology was different then as opposed to now. How important is technology? And probably, I would think, important in terms of deciding whether something's counterfeit or not, but also in terms of helping to locate some of these treasures, and I call, I'll call them treasures. How important is that technology from the late days when you started to, to now? Well, the, uh, the, you know, science has, has advanced immensely since the 1980s in this, in this world. Forensic evaluations, different types of paint, the uh, ability to look through with x-rays and different types of radiological 
uh, materials to see what, what canvases are made of. All of that has advanced exponentially. So that's become very important to identify fakes, to identify forgeries. So we do have a lot more information about that. The internet's really helped us as well because the word can get out almost immediately when a, when a theft occurs. Someone in Paris steals a Rembrandt or a Renoir. I hear about it within moments of it happening. So the, the ability to communicate and, and travel has been a, a huge boon for investigators in this, in this field. And I would think the surveillance aspect also improves with technology over the years. Yeah, there's a there's a program at the FBI now called Ubiquitous Surveillance. Basically, what that means is that there's surveillance cameras everywhere. So if you go into a city, cities have them set up on corners, uh, and, and even surveillance cameras of people, like ring cameras, that type of thing on their doors, all of those capture you know images and videos of situations. Now, if someone you know does a carjacking, two doors up. Probably on a ring camera somewhere, you're going to have that video of that carjacking, even if the authorities don't have a video camera set up. So just to show that, that just gives you an idea of the, of the ubiquitousness of surveillance all over the world, all over the United States, at least. Now, your second book, The Devil's Diary, Alfred Rosenberg and the Stolen Secrets of the Third Reich. What's always amazed me is I keep thinking I know a lot about World War II, and I read a lot of World War II books. Almost yearly, one, two, three, five books come out covering another aspect of the war that I didn't know about. In your book, why did you decide to write about Alfred Rosenberg and the Stolen Secrets? Well, it was a, a situation where I was contacted by the U.S. Holocaust Museum in Washington to conduct an investigation to try to recover the diary of Alfred Rosenberg. Alfred Rosenberg was Hitler's social scientist. In many respects, Alfred Rosenberg is the man who made Hitler into Hitler. He met Adolf Hitler in 1919, when Rosenberg was basically the head of the Nazi party in Germany. It was starting up. It was right after the First World War. Rosenberg was the guy with the ideas. You know, he was the idea, had the ideas of, of the Jews being thrown out of Germany. He had the idea of the Aryan races and the ladder of, of, of steps of races, and being the Aryans being the top of the ladder. These were all his the philosophies. And basically, Hitler was sent to, to monitor him by the government. He was a, a corporal in the First World War. He was a dedicated, loyal soldier. They sent him to, to go to some of these meetings to monitor his action, uh, Rosenberg's actions. Well, Hitler liked what he heard. And Rosenberg sort of took him under his wing, adopted him as, you know, as his spokesperson, because he recognized in Adolf Hitler a person who could raise a crowd, who could create havoc. So he used him, and basically, eventually, the pupil became the master, and he was, you know, Hitler became more important than Alfred Rosenberg. But throughout the years, they were together. In fact, the two biggest books in Germany during the 19, late 1920s and early 30s were Mein Kampf that Hitler wrote, and a book by, that Alfred Rosenberg wrote as well, was the second largest selling book. So if you were a member of the party, you had to have both books on your coffee table to be, you know, a, a person that was accepted. So Rosenberg became the Reich Minister of the East. He was in charge of Russia, Poland, Romania during the Second World War. Uh, he's not as well known as, uh, as some of the others, but, you know, his, his influence was just as important because it was his ideas that all of those other people were working under. And uh, so he wrote a, a diary, a 400-page diary between 1936 and 1945. 
And that diary was captured uh, by Patton's troops in the basement of a castle in Bavaria. And uh, when the diary was captured, it was sent to Nuremberg. It was used by prosecutors at Nuremberg to basically prosecute Rosenberg and, and the other first 10 that were uh, hung after the trials in 1946. Rosenberg was one of the first 10 that was uh, executed. Uh, but as soon as that happened, the diary went underground. It was, it was taken, basically stolen by one of the prosecutors who brought it back to Philadelphia. And at that point, from then on, it wasn't known or seen. It had never been transcribed or translated. So as a result, historians didn't really know what was in the diary. It, it almost became like, you know, a, a mythical thing, the Rosenberg diary. So the Holocaust Museum heard about it and had a lead on it. So they contacted my company and they asked us to do an investigation to try to find it. Ultimately, we did recover it. It was in Buffalo, New York. It's a pretty interesting story of how it ended up there, why it was there. And so what we did in 2016, I published a, my second book. And what I do in the book is I talk about about the first hundred pages are the investigation, how we recovered it, the, the detective story. The rest of the book, about another 250 pages, is actually a description of what was in the diary. So remember, what we had to do was have it translated, which we did, and then we put it into a form where you know the different dates in the diary matched up with dates during the Second World War. So to give you an example, uh, on the day in 1939 or 1940 when, when Hitler invaded Russia, Rosenberg talks about the day of the invasion, how he was in his garden and he was taking care of his plants to watch them grow because just as he knew that things were going to grow from the Russian invasion. So he, he goes into these different dates and experiences during the war, but he talks about how, what he was doing. He also talks about luncheons and meetings he had with Adolf Hitler during the war. So we have a first-person account of, a, of, of the highest reaches of the Third Reich that had never been transcribed, translated, or, or read. So that's what we did in the, in the book itself. It's published now in 30 countries. 30 different languages, and uh, it's, it's going on going over pretty well. And does the diary now reside at the Holocaust Museum in Washington? Yeah, it actually belonged to the National Archives. Uh, when we recovered it, it was, uh, it was basically uh, taken over by the federal government. But the archives, because of the investigation that the Holocaust Museum did, they allowed the museum to keep the original, and they now have a copy. Fascinating. You would think, though, that uh, Rosenberg would have been suspicious of Hitler because he was being sent there to observe and monitor. Did uh, Hitler ever come clean with Rosenberg about why he was sent initially, or how did that? Yeah, work? it came. It came out years later, but by that point, you know, they were they were good. They were you know good friends. I mean, uh, Rosenberg was at that point was uh, Hitler's deputy, and Hitler was the uh, the leader, and Rosenberg thought of him almost like a deity. You know, it was his Fuhrer. It was his, and one of one of the segments in the diary, he talks about his 50th birthday, and he was so proud because Adolf Hitler came to his, his home to wish him a happy birthday. And there's actually photographs of that when he was when he was there, and uh, he talks about how wonderful it was to have the Fuhrer in his home. So you can see how he he became a real uh, acolyte right. of Adolf Hitler. They also talk a lot about what they were going to do to the church. Uh, Hitler used to call the the priests shavelings because they had their heads shaved, you know, like monks. And he, you know, and he would talk about uh, how after the war, after they had won the war, what he would do to the shavelings. 
And there's a lot of interesting talk in there about uh, stories in there about about their theories about how how important the church was in versus the Nazi, you know, the Nazi party. They both would have enjoyed more that the that the members of the party would be at party meetings on Sundays rather than at church. And they talk about that. I suspect you have a third book in you. Am I right? Well, we're always looking. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm thinking right now about doing a second, uh, you know, a sequel to Priceless. Because I, I, start, I left the FBI in 2008. I retired. I started my own company, Robert Whitman Incorporated. And now we're, I've been involved in so many different cases and so many different recoveries and so many stories that uh, I'm thinking about doing a second book. You know, it's, it's Robert Whitman after the FBI. And that's a whole fascinating story in and of itself. What's the most important thing you're doing now with your company in terms of investigations and witness testimony and management uh, of collections? What would you say is the most important thing from your perspective? Well, I think that uh, being able to help people, I mean, that's, that's the major thing. Uh, it's not always about, you know, fees or money or anything like that. You know, when I, when I do expert witness testimony, like for a law firm, then, you know, then I, I charge, you know, for that. Uh, but I've done that and helped people who uh, were in trouble and had to have, have some help. And uh, I could do that for them. I would do it. Also, you know, investigations. Now, occasionally uh, I get involved in things where people have, you know, lost items that are important to their family. And I, I get involved in that and I, and I will work for that as well. Mostly my, my number one question when someone calls me, and I get calls twice a week, three times a week emails from people is what is it that they want and, and whether or not I can do anything to help them. Those are the two major questions. It's not about fees, not about anything like that. It's can I help you? And, and I understand if you want something, but if I can't do anything to move it forward for you, I won't do your case. So the point is, you know, is trying to help people now at this point to get back what they've lost. Because many times, you know, these things are very sentimental. They're not always very valuable, but they're sentimental. And they mean a lot. Give you an example. I recovered a uh, painting just uh, a few months ago. It was a. Uh, it was by. A, it was. A, it was. A, it was a big eye painting. Uh, there was a famous movie that came out a few years ago called The Big Eyes, and this artist was from San Francisco, and she would do these paintings of children that had these large eyes. Well, this painting was done in 1972. It was. It was uh, owned by a dentist, and it had five young children in the painting. And what happened was, uh, it was stolen from his dental office. So his daughter called me and said, you know, could we help her get her painting back? And she was actually in the painting. Her, she was the girl in the middle. And she sent me pictures of herself when she was five years old. And that was her. You know, you could see her in the painting and you knew it was her. So we were able to recover that painting for it. was only worth maybe $30,000, $35,000. It's not the money. It's the fact that her family had been searching for 50 years to try to get that piece back. And some of the witnesses, Ira, were 90 years old, but they were still alive. And hey, you know, Hawaii must be a great place to live because they're 90 years old and they remember the day it was stolen. So they could, they could testify to it. So we were able to get that back for her. And, and that was a good thing. Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Robert Whitman, former senior investigator and founder of the Federal Bureau of Investigation's National Art Crime Team. And he's currently president of Robert Whitman Incorporated a security and recovery consulting firm serving institutions, auction houses, collectors, galleries, insurance companies, and nations interested in protecting their cultural assets. He also finds time to be a keynote speaker at meetings and conventions across the country, as well as an upcoming Zoom lecture series he's doing Thursday, September 8th 
through the 29th for the University of Pennsylvania Museum. It's called The Deep Dig, Rescuing Priceless Treasures with Robert Whitman. For everything about Robert Whitman, go to robertwhitmaninc.com. And for information on his upcoming Zoom lecture, go to penn.museum. And Robert, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Ira. It's great. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.